Hello, everybody. Welcome to another DC Spotlight collaboration between the Comic Source and Comic Boom. Jason Rocky here to talk to you about the DC books this week. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I feel like last week was a little better, not significantly so. There are a couple of decent books this week. Nothing blew me away, but nothing was was terrible. Uh, I thought Green Lantern actually improved for me a little bit over last week. Still not not perfect. Uh, I was looking forward to this week of Crime Syndicate because we were finally going to get Alexander Luther. I won't say it was a bit of a letdown, but it wasn't as it wasn't as impactful as an appearance of Alexander Luther as I, as I'd hoped. Uh, Batman Fortnite kind of feel like, boy, if you play Fortnite, you get a lot more out of this book because I was kind of <laughs> lost. I'll be curious to see. I mean, I know just the basic of Fortnite, you know, in terms of, yeah, the, they force you together because it's like this circle on the map that keeps getting smaller. So that's how they force people to eventually confront each other. And only one person survives, right? It's like a battle royale. And there, can, <laughs> yeah. there can be only one, the Highlander. Um, so it makes sense what was going on, but I still feel like if I knew the game, maybe I'd get a little more out of it. But anyway, what what were your uh, first impressions, Rocky? Anything stand out? Anything terrible? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first impressions, I got to say Green Lantern number two. Absolutely. This is, I don't know why I'm stunned that DC hasn't given the heads up on this. This this greatly impacts Green Lantern mythology. It has an indirect, arguably huge impact on DC history and, and, and the structure of the DC universe to, uh, as a whole with this emphasis on seven important new worlds, two of which were destroyed, Krypton and Exanshi, and, and, and sort of greatly impacting the status quo of the Green Lantern core. I think diehard Green Lantern fans, it'll be very interesting to see what their viewpoint is on Green Lantern. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting that Jeffrey Thorne wasn't going to, you know, he spoke ill of Hell Jordan, but Hell Jordan was the only Green Lantern he hasn't really messed with in Green Lantern so far. And Batman, we got America Molly for speculators, but I think speculator alert, keep it on Green Lantern number two. I think it's a sleeper. Swamp Thing, we got the dichotomy of Pamela Isley, Poison Ivy, but there's two sides of her. There's the poison and then there's the ivy. It's interesting. Two sides to her. Uh, zero point, very very much reflection of the, of the video game, uh, which I've learned more about. I didn't mind it. Crime Syndicate, I agree with you. I was a little disappointed with Alexander Luther. I thought he was more of a, almost like a, surprisingly, a, more of a, he was, almost like a stooge and he, he was being led around as opposed to uh I was I was expecting a little bit more uh intelligence on the part of Alexander Luther but I really liked Donna Troy I really liked her her her, her character work Suicide Squad Suicide Squad should have come before Teen Titans Academy last week so DC is you know editorially is mixing things up but beyond that I got to tell you I enjoyed these stories again overall <laughs> I am this is I can tell DC has a direction, but I got to tell you the spec, the uh, the continuity side of me, you know, which I know I got to get over because it's the new Omniverse, the new Infinite Frontier. You know, I'm I'm still kind of a I'm an old I'm an old dog, stubbornly refusing to learn new tricks, but I know I have to. But <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it just feels like so much of this is okay. We know where we're going. We we know what we saw with Future State. You know, Green Lantern is a perfect example. So now let's tell me the story of how we got there. I've already read it. I've already read Green Lantern Future State. It wasn't good. I hated it. 
<laughs> I don't want to go there. So why am I going to read the story about getting there? So, yeah, I mean, we'll talk more about it in detail when, when we get to it. But I think that's the problem. I think the big misstep was future state. Well, here we are months later. We're still talking about what a bad idea future state was, you know, with yeah. the exception of Aqu Aquaman. <laughs> and there's no Aquaman book to kind of screw that up. So anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's kick it off with Suicide Squad. Uh, you, you mentioned it should have come before uh Last last week's Teen Titans Academy, I totally agree with you. Uh, but there is a lot to like here. So it's written by Robbie Thompson. Pencils are by Eduardo Pensica. Inks are by Julio Ferreira. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. We get a lot of Nocturna. We get a lot of uh, Culebra, Culabra, whatever she's called. Yeah. Uh, we get um, <laughs> we get Talon saying who who. Uh, and is this just an elaborate knock-knock <laughs> joke from, from Calabra? We get uh, we get uh, Peacemaker finally getting his uh, his butt kicked, kind of the whole one-punch thing uh, at the end, which is sort of surprising because he comes across as you know such a such a tough guy. But Red X knocks him out. Well, I mean, I guess he does uh, land one kick first and then one punch, and he goes down. So that was interesting. Uh, but he sure comes across as kind of a, a jerk, which I I. <laughs> Which is fine. That's how they want to characterize them. I, I just find it a little interesting. I mean, we, we've talked in the past when we've collaborated with Rocky about how we, we feel like the reason Peacemaker's here, the reason he's the leader of Suicide Squad, it, it all has to do with James Gunn and the Suicide Squad movie. But his characterization from what we've seen with uh, with the John Cena portrayal is is wildly different. Uh, th this, in, in the trailers and the, and the footage we've seen from the Suicide Squad movie, it seems like he's he's played for comic effect, you know, like he, he takes everything he says seriously, but it's so, what he says is, is so goofy and out of touch that you, it's humorous. Right. Whereas this, uh, this version of peacemaker is all serious all the time. Yeah. He does. He doesn't have a, you know, a funny <laughs> bone in his, in his body. Um, but so, so it's interesting the the difference, um, Nocturna, I've always been kind of a fan. I think she's an interesting character, uh, first appeared in, I think detective way back in the day. Um, she has some, uh, some ties to Jason Todd. Um, but, but really for me, Culebra is the one that, that steals the show here. Every time she's on the page, Robbie Thompson just nails her characterization with her cracking the jokes. And she's my favorite part of this book without question. She's just the, the, the humor that she brings to it is just, it, it it's what I look forward to it. it and it's done so well by Robbie Thompson and that there's a, there's a tendency uh, in suicide squad to take itself too seriously. Obviously everybody's got a bomb in their neck and you know, that in and of itself is, is interesting because I, I was thinking about it while I was reading this and there's a scene early on where uh, Amanda Waller says something about um, to Nocturna about, you know, do, do what I say or, or do what, um, do what Peacemaker says or say goodbye to your pretty little head, right? And she kind of rubs her neck because, yeah. again, that, that's where the bombs are. Um, and I, I was thinking about that. And, yeah, when somebody betrays Amanda Waller, somebody goes off book, they're not following directions or mission protocol or whatever, she blows their head off and they're dead, right? Um, if you remember back in the day, it wasn't these bombs in the neck. It was, it was a bracelet. And if you – that was on one of your arms. And if you 
disobeyed, you got your arm blown off, which I don't know. Maybe that wasn't enough of a deterrent. Has the world just become that much more violent? Now it's got to be a, a bigger threat. I mean, I would think yeah. that would be enough. So, but it, it struck me. I was like, when, when that change happened and, and why? Maybe it's just Amanda Waller. You, you know, the, the whole thing, same thing with Batman, right? Like people keep upping the power level. Same thing with Amanda Waller. People have to keep making her even, you know, more of a, a jerk. So now it's not, you don't just lose a limb. You're losing your whole life. So, uh, but yeah, there's that tendency for Suicide Squad to be a very heavy book, you know, life and death all the time. And so I, I really appreciate Robbie Thompson injecting this character of Culebra, who she's just hilarious. Uh, the art is fantastic by Eduardo Panseca. Um, the inks by Julio Ferreira. Like the color work is done very, very well. It's just a really, really great book. I'm, I'm glad, like I wasn't originally going to pick this up, because I felt like, okay, well, here we go with Peacemaker on the cover and it's kind of, you know, forced inclusion because of the movie or what have you. I wasn't a big fan of the Suicide Squad Future State title, but uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm, I'm reading this because it's, it's really surprising me with just how, how good it is. Uh, I mean, the, and the biggest part of the reason I went in and took a chance on it was because I, I like Talon. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. Well, it wasn't because of Amanda Waller. I know you don't like her. No, no, <laughs> definitely was not because of Amanda Waller. And the whole inclusion of Superboy still doesn't make sense. Although we did get some hints here that there may be something else going on with him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way about this book that I feel about a lot of the, the titles that are going on right now that could possibly lead into that possible future of Future State. And that's if this book can can keep the same tone and, and tell its own story and and that Future State can just be forgotten. It's a potential future that we're never going to get to then I, I, I'll, I'll be on for the long haul. But if it starts steering more towards that, like if, you know, three or four issues from now, the whole of Amanda Waller's operation moves to Earth 3, I would be disappointed. Like, just just tell me the story and give me enough of this story that you're telling to make me realize that that possible future that we saw in Future State is not going to happen. So I can just get rid of that, just, you know, shove it to the side, get rid of the bad taste of that. And just let me just focus on the story without it knowing where it's going to go. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, uh, it, the future state thing throws a wrinkle into all this. I, I'm not sure how we're exactly, we're going to get to that future state on earth three, where we are to believe that Amanda Waller's master plan is to somehow ultimately make Connor Kent, the Superman of earth three. I mean, that's the end game here if Future State is to be believed. And so that's, that's interesting. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if I necessarily like that outcome for Future State, but I love the character that Robbie, that writer Robbie Thompson does in this issue. I really, I was quite impressed with Nocturna. I've, I've never been a fan of Nocturna, Nocturna. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I even saw her in a comic book other than when I, the series began, to be honest with you. I actually, I, I even got a little bit of a sense, as not, does Nocturna even have a little bit of a crush on Connor Kent? Maybe I picked up a vibe there, but maybe I'm reading too much into it. But Amanda Waller uh, recruiting uh, Nocturna to, to try to peer using her glamour power to get some information from Connor Kent because she wants to make sure that Connor Kent is on her is on the team, that he's not going to be a, a wild card because of his behavior in the, on, in the first few issues. She doesn't want a wild card. But yet, it's clear that Nocturna thinks that there's something wrong with Superboy. And it's 
you know, and it's interesting from a continuity point of view, they go through it and it looks like this is the same Connor Kent that was a member of Teen Titans, was a member of Young Justice, and that ultimately uh, now finds himself in his the situation he's in. And so it, because Con- frankly, the existence of Connor Kent in the, at least prior to Death Metal, was kind of a wild card and it was terribly explained by Bendis. It was, in fact, it wasn't really explained so his very existence is still a little bit of a question mark, I think. But I love the character work here. I, I love, and uh, you, you've talked about it. I love the fact that Peacemaker is, um, uh, he's kind of a jerk. He, he's lacking the humor. That The humor that comes across in the Suicide Squad movie, uh, movie trailers does not come across very well in the comic book. I think that Peacemaker can still be funny, but he, he's a little bit, He's, he seems to have a little bit more of a sense of humor in the in the movie trailers. Although even in the movie trailers, I don't think he's intending to be funny. I think he's he's just as serious in the Suicide Squad movie that's going to be coming out as as here. Yeah, but that's he's just, what makes it funny. He yeah, believes the dumb stuff he's saying. Exactly, but like you said, here it's not. It's you know I think that's a difficult thing for Robbie Thompson to pull off. So I'm I'm prepared to cut him some slack on that, but. Overall, you know, look, I'm. I agree with you. I'm impressed. I really the uh, the cliffhanger ending really surprised me. With I, I thought Red X because Teen Titans ended with Red X seemingly protecting Bolt of Teen Titans Academy, and here it looks as if he's knocking out Peacemaker to actually work with the Suicide Squad to recruit Bolt into the Suicide Squad. Which, as we know from Future State, Bolt will ultimately end up working with the Suicide Squad. So a lot of this stuff we already have the answers to. And like you said, uh, we say again, you and I have said it, uh, Jace, uh, from the beginning, that Future State has ruined some of these storylines. Like, not, not completely ruined it. I'm still enjoying it. I'm enjoying reading this. But I really didn't need Future State there would be more suspense to this storyline had we never had anything to do with Future State. I would have preferred jumping in cold. But in any event, overall, I'm 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 happy with this. And by the way, uh, uh, teleporters don't last long on the Suicide Squad. Uh, we gotta we gotta have a eulogy for Keymaster once again. We've got a teleporter that didn't last an issue <laughs> because the tele the reason why Amanda Wano wanted to recruit Bolt was because they needed a speedster because their teleporter doesn't work very well. Their teleporter died last issue. The new one, Keymaster, he <laughs> he tried to escape first thing, and Amanda Waller blew his head off in this issue, and so. Yeah, Amanda Waller seems to have a poor relationship with any teleporter, so uh, uh, just a word of warning. But yeah, I'm you know again, this is this is probably one of the better better titles this week. I think. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's by far the best thing Robbie Thompson's ever written. Not that I've read, you know, everything he's done. Uh, I certainly read some of his his Spider Gwen stuff, some of the stuff he did over at at Marvel, uh, and to me, this is just leaps and bounds over anything that he's he's done previously uh, i don't know that i've re- i mean i must have read some of his his other um dc work before but but nothing comes to mind um but he's got he's got some really great lines like i mentioned the the whole calabra calibra uh her humor and then when uh the the best scene in the in the book and again in case you i forgot to mention we are going full spoilers here everybody in case you didn't, didn't realize um <laughs> But the whole, uh, the whole uh, when they're talking, uh, Peacemaker's talking to Amanda Waller 
about this operation to cap, try to capture bull. What if, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? Who's, who's to stop her if she runs? And then Connor Kent shows up. I'll, I'll stop her. And, and the, that whole interaction, you know, where Peacemaker's <laughs> like, oh, do, do we have a problem, Boy Scout? He's like, bleep around and find out, tin can man. Like, I, I, I love that. That's a harder edge to, to Connor <laughs> Kent than I've, I've seen before. Um, but, you know, considering like the hint that something's wrong with him, that Nocturna has mentioned, uh, you know, maybe that's the whole reason he's he's even in Because that's the thing about that I don't really get. I just don't see Connor Kent willing to work with Amanda Waller because she's a bad guy, basically. Yeah. Um, but if there's something else going on and, and that's been hinted at, that's great. But just that line, you know, yeah. leap around and find out, Tin Can Man. I got a, I got a big kick out of that, so. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's let's move on. Uh, next up is uh, is Crime Syndicate, written by Andy Schmidt. We have Pencils in the Main Story by Kieran McCowan, inks by Dexter Vines, colors by Steve Olaf, letters by Rob Lee, and then there's a, a backup with uh, with Superwoman, the, the Donna Troy version, as uh, Rocky alluded to earlier. That one's also written by Andy Schmidt, but we have uh, art in that by uh, by Brian Hitch. And uh, well, I'm not sure who did the colors on that. Oh, uh, Alex Sinclair did the colors and sa- same letter, Rob Lee. Um, so you go first this time, Rocky. What, what were your thoughts on uh, on Crime Syndicate number three? Well, I really like the uh, I like the character work of uh, Donna Troy. Uh, one of the one of the concerns I had at the end of the second issue, and I had it in parts of this third issue, is I, I wanted. I wanted the crime syndicate to be more sophisticated than just having Owlman be the only one who was intelligent. Like I, I was concerned that Owlman was. Uh, I think there's a tendency sometimes with writers of the nor of the Justice League to make sometimes Batman be a little bit too uber Batman, super super intelligent Batman, and I always find that some. I was worried that Owlman would come across as you know too intelligent. He's the one. Without Owlman, they wouldn't be able to defeat anything and defeat anybody. I like the fact that Donna Troy stepped up to the plate. Ultraman, of course, comes across as frankly insane. He, I mean, as they're battling the Staros, it, it becomes it becomes clear in this issue. And I really like the pencil Kieran McEwen. Uh, uh, on penciling Dexter Vines on the ink. I, I love the art. It, it, it was, I, I quite enjoyed it. It becomes clear, clear that the Staros are trying to save their own life and they're looking for help against the overlords of Oa. So the equivalent guardians of the universe, the overlords of Oa in the Earth 3 universe, they've actually, they're destroying the Staros. So the Staros are actually just trying to survive. They're not trying, even. they're just looking for help. And of course, uh, Ultraman injects himself with kryptonite. Uh, that's how he gets his powers, and he, he's he's insane. And they're you know, they're at, the Staros are 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 basically attacking, looking for help. Ultraman, Donna Troy, Owlman, they just wanted to kill the Staros, and then they and they're they're more in it for their ego. That's one thing writer Andy Schmidt got right that the crime syndicate they do not put citizens first. The crime syndicate eliminates the enemy at all costs and they will sacrifice innocent lives just to win the day and the only one who's concerned about saving lives is alexander luther now this is where we get into alexander luther and of course he alexander luther is supposed to you know the good guy of earth three unfortunately i was a little disappointed in that all all he did was he sort of like he was he was he sort of did what he was told he was humiliated by ultraman at first it looked like 
you know, at one point, I think Catherine Grant was reporting, and and the big, the big question was, are, are Alexander Luther and Ultraman going to work together? And of course, Ultraman doesn't. He grabs, <laughs> he grabs um, Alexander Luther by the by the feet and throws him away. And Alexander Luther is just angry, and I hate that man. And uh, I thought Alexander Luther came across came across more like a buffoon as opposed to someone to be as a as a as an opponent to Ultraman that should be taken more seriously. Uh, but he served his duty. At one point, Owlman even derogator, derogatively said to Alexander Luther, you know, you do you, uh, Luther. In other words, you know, you want to save lives, go ahead and do that. You know, the crime Senate was just concerned about eliminating the Staros, not concerned about saving citizens. And um, and that's fine. I just, I would have liked to have seen, and I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not the writer. I don't want to play script doctor, but I would have liked to have seen a little bit more a little bit more of a maybe a poke by Alexander Luther, a little bit more of his own day in the sun, so to speak. Um, but I really like that there's on on the final scene where they kind of like do a selfie. All the all the crime syndicate they do a selfie where they're all in front of a, of a camera and and uh, Atomica is sticking her tongue out and Ultraman is doing a pose and they're all posing for the camera for this world now that their secret is out and it so. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun this issue. I I loved Donna Troy. I thought she was I, I, I love how kick ass she is. The the backup talks about Donna Troy where she's got she's got basically her ultimate dream is to go back to uh Demon's Island, not Paradise Island, but Demon's Island to dethrone her mother, overthrow her mother and be the queen of all the Amazons. And her sister Diana was too weak to take the role. Donna Troy even ended up meeting and ultimately Donna Troy's she she defeated the Staros because she can manipulate emotions. No one's better at manipulating emotions than Donna Troy, Superwoman. And it's ironic that her origins are grounded in having her emotions manipulated by Steve Trevor, who she of course ultimately had to eliminate at the beginning of that that set her off on her career uh, back in World War Two. And again, some of this is you know might be a little bit predictable but it's setting the stage i think for for stories to come and maybe playing it a little bit safe but overall i still have a you know i got a smile on my face but i was i'd be lying if i said i wasn't expecting just a little bit more yeah i mean i kind of i kind of feel the same way um because you know andy schmidt had told us you know alexander luther coming in in issue three and uh i mean the title's not Alexander Luther. Clearly, the title's Crime Syndicate, and so they have the spotlight as as well they should. But yeah, we didn't really. F- There's at no point did I ever feel like Alexander Luther is a a worthy opponent for uh, for Ultraman, despite Ultraman's you know lack of intelligence. As as Rocky said, he comes across as a buffoon at times, and there is a tendency to think of Alman as the only uh, intelligent one. So I agree with you. It's it's great to to get this issue where Donna Troy is showing her uh, in, intelligence. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's still, if, if you look at it in terms of, okay, this is the crime syndicate coming together, the, you know, the new origin for the, this version of the crime syndicate for, for the Omniverse post death metal or however you want to label them. Uh, it, it's clearly a different version. You know, we've got Emerald Knight instead of Power Ring, We've got Donna Troy as Superwoman rather than this Lois Lane Wonder Woman mashup. Um, there are some other 
characters hinted at. We see kind of a, an, an, a sea king. We see uh, a, a version of Vixen. Um, there's another one that maybe is Red Star. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Obviously, Johnny Quick looks very different. Atomica is, is a person of color now. Uh, Luther uh, himself, Alexander Luther himself is a person of color. So maybe Luther will learn and, and get better at what he's supposed to be doing um, and become more formidable. I, I, I kind of would like to see that. Um, and maybe he'll learn from, from what's, what's transpired here. Um, but this clearly is the more the Donna Troy story than, uh, than anything else. The Superwoman or Donna Troy version of Superwoman. Um, a couple of the little things that I, I love that they've done. First of all, she doesn't have uh, her lasso is not a rope. If you notice, it's even on the, the, uh, the variant cover, it's barbed wire, uh, which I find to be a really interesting choice. And throughout the issue, you see that where it's, it's not, you know, a, a smooth rope, it's barbed wire. So I like that whole uh, idea of it being thrown in. The, the other thing, you know, I was kind of taken aback or I won't say disappointed, but just I didn't really understand the choice of going with Donna Troy as Superwoman rather than, you know, a Lois Lane uh, mashup of, uh, you know, with Wonder Woman's power sort of and, and that connection to Ultraman. But uh, I got to say, after this issue where we really get a spotlight on on uh, Superwoman and the Donna Troy uh, version uh, that I really kind of like the choice because it, it automatically separates her from from Ultraman, right? Like there's no way to, to separate the old Superwoman from Ultraman because it's still the lowest lane of that world, Earth 3, and the Clark Kent of that world, you know? And, and you can never separate Clark Kent and Lois Lane uh, yeah. You know, no matter how hard you try, they're intrinsically linked, no matter what version of reality you're, you're talking about. Um, and so this sort of gives Annie Schmidt a sort of a clean slate by taking Lois Lane off the page and saying, no, Superwoman in this reality or in this version is, is Donna Troy. She's not inherent. She's not uh, derivative of, of Superman or, or Clark Kent at all. Yeah. So I do. I do like that. Um, and I did like the backup story that gave us more insight into kind of why she is the way she is, um, how she'll she'll trust no man, and her her instincts for evil are are you know right up there with Ultraman. Although she's like Rocky said, Ultraman comes across as sort of uh, I don't want to say insane or crazy, but he, he's definitely a he definitely has a certain way of looking at things. You know, I think everything with him is driven so much by his ego and the attention and the praise and the, the adulation that he expects from people. And uh, he doesn't always, you know, think logically as opposed to Owlman who, you know, we got his origin last issue a hundred percent thinks logically and, and has decided that, Hey, I'm just going to be a, a bad guy. It's better. It's more fun. Yeah. Owl, um, Owlman seems to treat Ultraman like, like Captain America treats the Hulk in the Avengers. It's just sort of like, uh, you know, Ultraman, you know, smash. Like, that's all Ultraman. Yeah. He's just always insane and he wants to hit something. And it's all ego and narcissism. And so I'm actually the least interested in Ultraman in this uh, in this incarnation because he just doesn't seem to be particularly... Uh, he doesn't seem to be as interesting to me as Donna Troy or Owlman because Owlman and Donna Troy both have some, have some layers to them quite frankly. And um, I was hoping to see more layers than Alexander Luther, but you know, we still have three issues left, so we shall see. 
Yeah, and what's going on with John Stewart or Emerald Knight is uh, I'm very curious about that as well. We probably know the least about him and the least about Johnny Quick at this point, but I don't know. To me, Johnny Quick just seems like a like a hillbilly who can run real fast. So why wouldn't he be selfish and want to just do whatever he wants to do? There doesn't seem to be a lot of layers there as opposed to John Stewart. It seems like there's there's more depth to be explored. So I mean, all in all, it's it's okay. Um, I'm glad I stuck with it through issue three. Um, it's, it's, and I've said this before, it's not my crime syndicate. It's not supposed to be. Um, and I still prefer the classic crime syndicate, but uh, I'll probably finish out the series just to see where it goes. Uh, I think the, the art, whether it's on the backup by Brian Hitch or in the main story by, uh, by Karen McCown or Dexter Vines has done really, really well. I think the color work uh, is especially good. And, and overall, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I'd be curious to, to hear from people who don't have any history with the crime syndicate, if they're enjoying this or, or, you know, if somebody's not bringing any preconceived notions or knowledge, like the way I am, if they're, uh, if they're enjoying this or not. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, up next is uh, swamp thing. Number three, it's from writer Ram V. We have art by Mike Perkins. We have colors by Mike Spicer. Aditya Bidikar handles the letters. Uh, and this is number three of uh, of ten. And as Rocky alluded to, we get a couple different versions of uh, of Poison Ivy here. So, uh, what are your thoughts on this, Rock? Uh, uh, again, I, Swamp Thing continues to impress me. I, I'm I'm really in, in, enjoying this. Uh, the the art by Mike Perkins is just absolutely gorgeous. I uh, I love it. Uh, the the new Swamp Thing, of course, the one that has the connection to the Green is Levi Kamei. Is it? Am I saying that right? Is it Kamei or Kamei? Yeah, Kami? I think it might be Kamei. Kamei? Okay, well, Levi Kamei uh, then. The, by Go the ahead. way, you're in both of the uh, circles right now. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Up here. I'll good. fix that. There you go. There we are. I'm back. All right. We'll see, make sure you're in the... Yeah, you're right in that one too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, Levi Kamei, he's, he's studying plants and animals and that are evolving through this en- endosymbiosis and he's studying the symbi- uh, the separation between the red and the green and his his friend, uh, I, I still insist she's, she's more of a friend with benefits, but maybe <laughs> she's helping him. They're doing... It's almost like he's getting a, I think he's getting an MRI done on his brain uh, to, to figure out what his connection to the green or the red is. And so they're trying to get to the, to the mystery of things. And in his experiments, uh, while he's being experimented on through with the MRI, the room becomes covered in, in green. And, and both him and Jen, Jennifer seem to become sort of pulled into this this other world of the green where they end up meeting up with where he ends up looking for Jennifer. She goes missing and he's, and Levi is looking for her in this world of the green and ultimately ends up uh, running into, running into poison Ivy or rather two versions of poison Ivy, which we see on the, the cover itself. And, it's interesting because uh, I'm going to make a reference here to Tom King's uh, ever since Heroes in Crisis, when Poison Ivy died, and then she sort of grew herself back from she was a flower that was floating on Gotham Harbor. Uh, I know people want to avoid forget about Heroes in Crisis, but it seems to me ever since Heroes in Crisis, when Poison Ivy sort of like she died and then she grew, she sort of grew back. 
because she, she started out, you know, she grew back as a plant. There's, there appears to be two sides to Ivy now. And in this case, she even makes a reference when Levi talks to Poison Ivy. She says, just Ivy, no poison. But then later in the issue, you run into Queen Ivy, which is, I'm inferring, the poison of the Ivy. So now Poison Ivy is almost like Poison and Ivy. Because <laughs> there's two, there's a dark side of her and a lighter side. And I think it's reflective of Pamela Isley, uh, of her struggle, her di- dichotomous struggle between being a plant, a living plant, and also being a human being. And there's always that struggle between her desire to save plant life and her own humanity. And it's interesting that I'm, I'm curious to wonder if Ram V is going to continue to explore that because that's this is a Swamp Thing book, not not a Poison Ivy book. But let's face it, Poison Ivy, if anybody has more of a connection to the green or an equal connection to the green as Swamp Thing, it's arguably Poison Ivy or I guess Ivy in this case. So I find it very interesting that there's two aspects of Ivy here. And I wonder if, if this is going to be expanded upon in other comic books and in even in, potentially in her relationship with Harley Quinn, which we expect to develop in uh, in the pages of Harley Quinn when ultimately Harley finds <laughs> Poison uh, po- uh, Pamela Isley. But in any event, I, th- I thought it was very fascinating. He ends up meeting uh, Alec Holland. An, an incarnation of Alec Holland is also in this other world or sort of this green. And it appears as if there's a contagion that, that, that must be stopped. And it sort of ends on that cliffhanger. The art was fantastic. I, uh, I'm, like I say, I'm definitely in. I, I love the first two issues. I love this issue. I love the character work on, on Pamela Isley. I'm really curious to know. I had one person complain that I spoke to about this. They, they, they say they don't want Pamela Isley to become like Two-Face. You know, they don't like the two different Ivies. But I actually like it. It makes sense to me. It makes sense that she would struggle between her own, uh, psychologically between being a plant, or a living plant versus humanity. I think I think that Pamela Isley and Levi Kame and Alec Holland, they all have that in common, that struggle between the green and their humanity. And uh, how how do you reconcile those two things? So I think there's rich themes here that Ram V is doing an excellent job exploring. And some people are complaining about Ram V's overexposition, but I like it. I think it works, and I think he makes it work for this story. Yeah, what I would say about Ivy, this is not anything new, these double sides of her. I specifically think back to Robert Venditti's work on damage when she showed up. And he kind of established there when you see Ivy with the sort of normal skin tone, that that's sort of the the more human, quote unquote, Ivy side, as opposed to when she has the green skin tone and the plant influence, the influence of the green is much stronger. And that's why her skin turns greenish and she's much more of the eco-terrorist as as that part. Um, It seems we've gotten away from that uh, a little bit, obviously, with what happened in Heroes in Crisis and her being, you know, regrown as a plant. I mean, I don't even know that she's human anymore. So of course she's going to be sort of a green, a greenish uh, hue. Uh, she certainly is showing up everywhere these days, though. I kind of liken her to, to Scarecrow. I don't know what it is about these bat villains. They creators seem to latch onto one and then we see them everywhere. Uh, we, we've seen it with the Joker and he's just omnipresent these days. Now we're seeing it with Scarecrow. He's showing up in multiple books. We've got, Ivy showing up here. We've got Ivy showing up in 
the pages of uh, Harley Quinn soon. We've got her in the pages of Catwoman. So is she going to show up in Batman as well? Like, I just, I just don't know. So it's kind of, it's kind of strange that we're getting a lot of Ivy right now. Um, that being said, as far as what we get from Swamp Thing, um, I, I feel like we didn't get a big chunk of Swamp Thing story here. Um, it's kind of a setup issue, obviously, with Alex Kamei meeting up with Alex, uh, Alec Holland, as uh, Rocky alluded to. That that's interesting to me, um, but it certainly seems like Ram V is is putting all the classic Swamp Thing stuff here, right? Like the transformation of uh, uh, of uh, Kamei to this version of of swamp thing jason woodrow the the floronic man showing up um you know the whole idea of the the green avatar and the red avatar and whatnot these are all really classic sort of swamp thing tropes so i think if you're a swamp thing fan this is going to be right up your alley i mean there's not a whole heck of a lot that um that Ramvi's doing that's that's a brand new here. Obviously, this is a new avatar, uh, but bringing in Alec Holland to explain to to Levi and whatnot, that's all, you know, very classic and, and clear that he wants to have a throughput, you know, have a, a, a thread going back through to the old sort of classic Swamp Thing stuff. So I think this is my, my last issue. I'm jumping off after this one because um, Swamp Thing's just not a character that I'm really that interested in. Um, Although I imagine I'll flip through because th- this is the best art of the series so far. Um, and I, I, you know, I did mention how detailed the art was in the first couple of issues, but I also had a little bit of, of trouble understanding why Ram V set the uh, outdoor scenes in the Sonoran desert, you know, the desert uh, of Arizona uh, where there isn't a lot of plant life and there isn't a lot of green or, or whatnot. Um, and I found that to be interesting because then you, it, it doesn't feel like a Swamp Thing book. This feels like a Swamp Thing book, right? Like when Levi goes into the, the green, everything is green. It's all plant life. It's all lush. And, you know, there's flowers and there's ivy and there's trees and everything is you know, green and red. And, um, you know, it, it's this, this place is alive and you feel that it, it, it you feel the, the sense of this lushness coming off the page. And so, uh, I, I give credit to, to Mike Spicer, the colorist, who does an incredible job of, of coloring this book. This is a gorgeous book for sure. Um, so, yeah, you'll, you'll probably be uh, talking in detail on it in uh, solo going forward, Rocky. I, I think, um, and, and, and again, not anything to say that this, this is a bad issue or it's not a good book at all. By the, uh, by the contrary, you know, it's, it's actually very good. It's just not my particular cup of tea. I just don't like it, it's great that he's got that throughput and he's bringing in classic Swamp Thing elements, um, but just reminds me of why I'm not a big fan of Swamp Thing. So uh, anyway, on to the next book. Rocky mentioned how, I, I guess, consequential or impactful it can be on the DC Universe going forward. I sort of, of question that. I have uh, I have a little bit of pushback on that, but we'll, we'll get to that. But anyway, it's Green Lantern number two, written by Jeffrey Thorne. We have Dexter Soy, Marco Santucci handling the art. Alex Sinclair does the colors. Rob Lee on letters. And, uh, yeah, a lot of doings. Um, and, and, again, if you haven't read it, you plan on reading it, you don't want it spoiled, uh, you probably want to shut this off and, uh, <laughs> and come back after you've read it because there's a lot of really, uh, really big changes to the Green Lantern 
corner of the the DC universe that we're going to be talking about here. So uh, let her rip, Rock. Well, uh, I got to tell you, this issue has a lot. Even if uh, even if you disagree with me that this is a that these this represents potentially major status quo changes for Greenland mythology, there's no question that there's a lot that is revealed in this issue. This issue covered a lot of ground and a lot of information and sets forth, at least moving forward, how things are different in this new Green Lantern, in this new Green Lantern reality. I mean, post-death metal now, moving forward, now that the, the, what's so consequential is that now that the, the Green Lantern Corps, now that Oa is a member of the United Planets, what has been revealed is that the Guardians have unilaterally decided, of course, because they always unilaterally decide. It's funny, the Guardians will happily cooperate and they're going to enter the United Planets and diplomatically engage in relations with thousands of other planets, but they, but they don't have any kind of democracy within their own core. They tell their core members what to do, but they will cooperate and give the courtesy of engaging in democratic ideals on planets that they've never run into before, but they won't, uh, they won't, uh, give the same courtesy to Green Lantern Corps members. That's typical guardians for you. And they, that behavior is Jeffrey Thorne gets that right here. He nails the guardians here. Their arrogance, their presumptiveness. They eliminate 1000 sectors across the galaxy are now without a protector, without a Green Lantern on the presumption that the United Planets, that, will establish a United Planet Protectorate that will replace somehow all those 1,000 Green Lanterns in various sectors across the galaxy. And that's part of the, I guess that's part of the uh, contractual relationship now that OA has with, as being a member of the United Planets. And they've, they've now taken those thousand members, those thousand Green Lanterns that you know, they have homes there. They live there. They they protected these sectors of the galaxy and the Guardians have pulled them in and basically reassigned them. And most of them are now under the leadership of Jon Stewart, who they're, who they're sending off to what they call the Dark Sector, which is an area of the, the universe that apparently has fluctuations and leaks from the bleed. And the bleed is the material that exists between universes in the multiverse. And there's also fluctuations in hypertime in this particular dark sector of the galaxy. And so they've created this giant Green Lantern-like starship. And 1,000 lanterns will be led by Jon Stewart into this new sector of the galaxy. So this it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, I think mileage will vary according to how to each individual Green Lantern fan. Uh, it's... Um, they're... Uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting information. Kyle Rayner is 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 assigned to the planet of Ragashun. Hal Jordan remains on Earth. So for those of you that were worried that Jeffrey Thorne was going to really punish Hal Jordan, no worries. Hal Jordan is still assigned to Earth. Simon Baz is is now assigned to the science department of Oa. Jessica Cruz has been assigned to another planet called Oshaya. Guy Gardner is now an outrider. So if you're an outrider, that means that he's like a bodyguard. Uh, he can now be assigned to do... He, 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 uh, outrider Green Lanterns go on random assignments as dictated by the Guardians in conjunction with the United Planets, as I understand it. Kilowog is assigned on the quest with Jon Stewart. 
And uh, uh, yeah, so there you have it. The other revelation is that there are now, it's been established now, it's been hinted at before just how important and significant Jon Stewart is. Well, why is Jon Stewart so, so significant? Jeffrey Thorne now has said that there are now seven, every universe has seven core planets, which are integral to the sanctity and the preservation uh, of of each individual universe. And two planets in our universe have already been destroyed, which have, which has potentially compromised the safety of our universe. And that was the planet Krypton and the planet Xanshi. I don't know. I have, again, Jace, if I'm saying that wrong, the planet Xanshi was That's the right. one. Xanshi. Yeah, Xanshi. That's the planet that Jon Stewart failed to save because of his arrogance back in the, I forget what. what Mosaic. Mosaic, thank you. And in any event, with so we only got five planets left, and that would be Oa, Mogo, uh, the New Genesis, Earth, and what I'm I'm guessing is the planet Thanagar, but I could be wrong on that. People can correct me on the in the in the comments below or what have you. I'll find out. Uh, it, it'll be discussed. But so we've got five core planets left that are really important. How this mixes in with the Elseworlds. Of the of Infinite Frontier and the Omega World that will be revealed in DC Infinite Frontier number issues one and two moving forward. I don't know, but it's interesting. It's really building the Green Lantern universe. I I like it because, but I'm wondering if everyone else is going to like it. Also, they've eliminated the Honor Guard. There's no Torchbearers. There's no Illustrious. There's no all these. The hierarchies that were part of the Jeff Johns established Green Lantern mythology, they're all gone. They've been eliminated. <laughs> I can't help but think that there's going to be some awfully upset people here, but maybe I'm, I don't know. You tell me, Jace, am I being paranoid? Am I, am I, am I just, am I over, am I overreacting to this? But I think this is a huge, huge issue. Yeah. So there's some big ideas and there's a lot of story. Jeffrey Thorne is not Jeff Johns. If Jeff Johns were to make massive changes like this, I think some people would like it. Some people wouldn't, but there would be a level of acceptance and you would sort of think, well, yeah, Jeff Johns, he's got the pedigree. He's got the, you know, the, the history. We trust him. Jeffrey Thorne is, is brand new to DC. So I have a feeling there's going to be a huge number of, fans, Green Lantern fans, who are going to read this and go, whether they like it or not, they don't, they're not going to expect it to last. You know, he doesn't, he just doesn't have the, the history behind him of, of creating and writing stories for DC and adding to their mythology and having it stick. So I, you know, you just as easily could have a writer come in after and go, no, 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 that, that, that didn't happen or, or whatever, right? So while there's potential and Jeffrey Thorne does seem to be trying to to make all these huge changes, it, I, I take it all with a grain of salt because who knows how much of it's actually going to stick. And again, we got to point the finger to future state and go, okay, well, we know in future state, none of the Green Lanterns even have any power. Um, and we see at the end of this issue... Maybe the, the biggest thing that happens in the whole issue, the Rocky didn't even mention, 
the green power battery explodes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Hal Jordan's on Earth. He didn't mess with him, but guess what? He's not a Green Lantern anymore. <laughs> And neither is anybody else. I feel guilty, Jace. I, I don't want to mention everything. I want you to be able to say some things. There's so much that happens in this issue. I don't want to harm Yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and you're right. And so we're left with Teen Lantern, who has a gauntlet that pulls power from somewhere. And we have Joe Mullen, who still has power in her ring for some reason. Other than that, we don't have any Green Lanterns left. Um, we don't know what happens to, to all the Green Lanterns that are in the the dark sector, like, are do their rings still function? Like, based on what we saw in Future State, apparently not. I mean, we get a couple of scenes here after the battery explodes of of lanterns in, you know, Kyle Rayner specifically out in space. <laughs> it looks like he's suffocating because he doesn't have any uh, any power anymore. Uh, we, we see a, uh, a gold beetle and wave rider and, and rip hunter looking at, this happening um this is not this is not good obviously and again you know you point to well here we go with jeffrey thorne wanting to get us to that story that that future state told where the lanterns don't have power anymore i don't have any interest in reading about john stewart or the thousand of other former green lanterns that went into the dark sector with him if they're not green lanterns i don't have any interest in that story based on how terrible future state was. Uh, I mentioned that I thought felt like this, this issue was better than the first issue. And and specifically the way that it's better is I don't have John Stewart shoved down my throat as the greatest hero ever in this issue, the way he was in, in the first issue, it still very much focuses on him as opposed to any other lantern but i, I th- thought that it was handled well yeah um it emphasizes I, his failure it does emphasize his failure to save zanshi yeah and and that's yeah. you know part of the character and, and whatever but there's plenty of other you know scenes of of hal and guy and kilowog and simon baz and, and jessica um like it seems like simon and uh, or hal and and jessica are the two that are kind of change the least i guess you would say i mean their assignments aren't necessarily jessica maybe because she's getting a tv show Hal because he's he's hal and jeffrey thorne doesn't want to get called out for uh his dislike of the character i'm i'm not sure so yeah i I take this all with a grain of salt who knows where it's leading um i i just i don't like i said what what did you think what did you think of Teen Lantern? I, I thought that they did a good job of putting her in her place. They finally treated her like the 11-year-old that she is because they she bit off yeah, more than she, she could chew. I, I thought that Jeffrey Thorne handled her quite well, this issue. Do you agree? Or? Yeah, much, much, well, I mean, there's still some inherent problems with the character. That's not. I'm not going to lay those problems at the feet of Jeffrey Thorne. He didn't create her. Um, but yeah, she does come across much more realistic in this issue as opposed to last issue. Uh, where she just was over the top and and didn't act like an eleven year old, so I thought that characterization was was okay. But again, I just I don't have an interest in reading a story about Green Lanterns who aren't actually Green Lanterns. That's not a. I mean, that story's been told. The whole idea of the battery blowing up, we just had that. We just had that in Robert Venditti's run, like where the the battery didn't work or it was depowered or whatever. So this isn't anything new or groundbreaking. Um, and, and like I said, I don't have any interest in, in reading about that version of John Stewart, who somehow through oh. his military Marine 
training can defeat cuns like we saw in that future state story it was so over the top and completely ridiculous and ludicrous. So I don't know. I'm, I'm in for another issue to see what happens. Um, but yeah, it was it, again, improvement on the first issue for me. Um, I thought the art by Dexter Soy was only okay. Frankly, I expect more from him. Um, it, it does look like Marco Santucci is trying to change his style up a little bit to have it look more in line with what, uh, what Dexter Soy does. Cause yeah. you can still tell which pages are done by Santucci, yeah. but they're not Santucci's normal, really clean style. Like you would see like when he was on Shazam, for example, um, they are the cleaner pages of, of the issue. And you can tell, okay, yeah, this one's Santucci as opposed to, uh, the ones that, uh, Dexter Soy does where, uh, everything is a, basically the first half of the book is, is Dexter Soy where everything is just a little more scritchy. I'll say if that's a word. Um, so it would be nice to get either one or the other on here. Um, cause I think I've seen Soy do, do better. This isn't his best work. Maybe he was rushed for some reason. Um, and that's why Santucci stepped in to, to help him. But overall the art's pretty solid. Um, and, and it is an improvement on the first issue. Like I said, it just, uh, Again, uh, I point the finger to future state and say that you know if that's where we're going, I well, I don't. Uh, I think the key is that vanishing point is is shown here, and vanishing point because vanishing point is shown. I think that time is being impacted here, and I think that we got hints. I mean, between Black Adam coming being sent back in time to prevent the the unkindness sort of bleak future of future state and between maybe vanishing point here and between what we know of of shazam and raven and teen titans i i think and between what we know with justice league dark about with the demon etrigan being able to impact time uh in in the present even though he's aware of the future i think that there's numerous escape clauses that dc has given itself in order to change the outcome so that we're not necessarily leading to future state. But again, I'm being defensive here. I agree with you. You and I have identified the, the problematic nature of future state. But it's I think that there are there are a sort of Easter eggs here or at least clues here that we may be headed for some for a different outcome because of these these players that were not in future state. We never saw although we did see Gold Beetle. I mean it's odd that you know Wave Rider and Gold Beetle at Vanishing Point are shown here and uh so the, there's there's some wild cards in this narrative which leads me to believe that very clearly DC editorial must have had a little remnant of a plan that some of the that the writers are playing with in all the titles. It's there. It's more disorganized than I would like, but it's there. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, the sooner that they can do whatever they need to do to let us know that, hey, this story is not gonna is not gonna lead to future state. The story is not gonna do whatever Jeffrey Thorne do whatever you need to do to show me definitively a hundred percent or ninety percent that this story that you're telling in Green Lantern doesn't lead to Jon Stewart fighting and defeating Coons with no powers, just his Marine training. Because that is so ludicrous. So whatever you need to do to convince me that that's not where we're headed, then I'm, I'm in. You know, whether these ideas will stick, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, 
But yeah, just let me know that this is not leading to future state. That's all I want because that story <laughs> sucked. That's there's no other way to put it. So yeah. anyway, let's move on. Uh, Batman number one hundred eight from writer James Tynan the fourth. We have Jorge Jimenez on art, Tameu More on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, yeah, what to say about this issue? Going back to the point I made before about Poison Ivy. Here we go with Scarecrow, Scarecrow, Scarecrow. Uh, we got hints of Scarecrow and Harley Quinn. We got Scarecrow over in Man Bat. We got Scarecrow here in uh, in Batman. We got Scarecrow in Urban Legends. Like I, I Batman has such the, the argument has always been Batman has the best rogues gallery in all of comics. I don't know why these writers or DC editorial or who it is that fixates. Okay, this year is the year of Scarecrow. You know, we saw it a few years ago with the Riddler. We saw Joker now omnipresent, like I said earlier. Like, man, remember when Batman, the, the title Batman would tell its own story and the title Detective would tell its own story and you could get like a, a black mask story going on in one and a, I don't know, a, a Mad Hatter story going on in the other. I, I, apparently those days are, are long gone. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's it's too it's too bad because, man, I'm, I'm quickly getting scarecrowed out here uh, and – you know, once again, we're, we're seeing Magistrate, we're seeing Simon Saint. So it's all leading to uh, the whole Future State storyline, which, you know, that was one of the better and more interesting storylines, the, the whole idea of Magistrate and this fascist organization, as much as I'm tired of, of fascist villains. Uh, but I, this is a good issue. All that being said, this is a good issue. We get Batman and his sort of his matches Malone, but not exactly matches Malone. Uh talking with uh, with Miracle Molly and Miracle Molly kind of gives Bruce the lowdown. She calls him matches, but all along she knows he's Batman and reveals that at the end. Um, and she kind of explains what the Unsanity Collective is and why they believe the way they believe. And while I don't agree with their beliefs or why they're doing what they're doing, you can understand it. It, it does make a sort of perverse sort of sense, even if I, I believe it's sort of misguided. So uh, I did enjoy that. This is, again, somewhat of a setup issue. There's not a, a whole lot of action. Where the book really shines, in, in my mind, is that this is the best art I've seen from Jorge Jimenez since he's come on the title. And I, I'll give a lot of credit to Tameo More on the colors. A lot of greens and purples here and pinks that, uh, that really make the art shine from... Um, from Jorge Jimenez, there's some great um, city skyline scenes. So actually, yeah, this has been my favorite issue since Tynan has, has come on the book, and there really wasn't that much action. Um, we see some Simon Saint stuff with Mahoney. I'll let uh, I'll let Rocky talk about that because he was onto that early uh, about Sean Mahoney. Um, we don't actually see the, the Scarecrow show up except on the on the first page here, but obviously everything is being put into motion by Simon Saint to manipulate things and continue to ma manipulate mayor Nakano, who quickly is climbing my list as one of the biggest dumbasses in terms of a, a character ever. Um, <laughs> and, and there, there is some hinting here about um, Nakano winning the election based on the fact that Gotham citizens are just tired of the vigilantism and, and uh, the wearing of masks. And, and I, I just don't, I don't know that I buy that. You know, how many times has Gotham City been saved by Batman 
And if you're a citizen of Gotham, if I was a citizen of Gotham, first of all, I'd move. Uh, second of all, if I couldn't move, I, I would want Batman around. <laughs> uh, I would not want, I would not vote for somebody who would get rid of Batman because if you think getting rid of Batman means all the villains are going to disappear too, I think you're incredibly naive and misguided. Um, so yeah, I thought this was a really great issue. The, uh, the backup story with, um, uh, with Ghostmaker uh, was interesting. I, I wonder if we're going to get one each uh, of them that focus on these different villains that we got introduced to last time. Um, James Tynan also writes it. Ricardo Lopez Ortiz is the artist, which his style is sort of Jorge Jimenez dialed up to uh, 11. It's not quite as clean. That's a little more stylized. Tomeo Mori does the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters, same as the, the main book. Um, and, and this one focused specifically on uh, one, just one of the characters that we got uh, introduced to last time, Kid Kawhi. Uh, and it, it was a fun enough story. It really did a great job of not only giving us background and history of Kid Kawhi, but really there's hints there when Kawhi's talking about how she's been foiled in the past by Ghostmaker. Um, despite all her improvements and everything they've tried to do, she's basically this sort of evolving machine, you know, think of like, uh, the, what is it? Terminator three with, uh, the malleable Christina Loken version of, of Terminator. It's kind of like that, you know, every time you kill her, she learns from it and she, they rebuild her and she comes back better and stronger and whatnot. Um, or doomsday for that matter. You could think of, of her like that, but at some point they just, they give up. Um, they, they say, uh, we replaced our strategy with, uh, one of retreat. Like instead of, (laughs) instead of just continuing to predict enhancements, what we did was we, we said, whenever, uh, Ghostmaker seems like he's onto us, we just don't take that contract. That that's a pretty big endorsement for how, how formidable Ghostmaker is as, as a character. So I did like that hint, but you don't get much Ghostmaker other than that little bit of character development, just a reminder of how great he is, which I guess you really Tynan's sort of putting him on that same level as, as Batman. Um, but it was interesting to learn about Kid Kawhi, and I, I don't know how many of these, how long this Ghostmaker backup's going to go on. I wonder if we'll get a spotlight for each of those characters, because there was like four or five or six different characters that we got last issue, if I don't, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there there was a whole bunch, uh, and I actually... Uh... I I I thought I was a little bit disappointed with the Ghostmaker uh, uh, story. It's clear what Tinian is doing here. He's he's obviously just going to go through one at a time of each of the individual characters, explaining their uh, explaining their experiences with Ghostmaker, and it it obviously is a Ghostmaker love fest. I was um, I don't know. I guess I was hoping for a little bit more. Uh, I guess that's fine. That's fine. Hey, we got a bit. We got to organically get to know Ghostmaker. There's still a lot we don't know about him. So I don't. I like Ghostmaker. I like his attitude. I like his cockiness. I like. I like how he's being differentiated by from Bruce Wayne. And I, I like Kid Kawhi. Uh, it, James Tynion is having fun with these new characters, and these are they're even kind of interesting. And and they are a little tropey. You know, kid. You know. You know. She's a, she's sort of a machine assassin. That that sort of adapts uh, as as she goes along, and and they they all have a healthy respect for Ghostmaker, like you said. Meanwhile, Ghostmaker himself seems to have a fairly flamboyant, cocky attitude. I'm I'm actually waiting. 
I, I personally hope Madame Midas is still an interesting character. I, I'm really curious to see how, how he deals with Madame Midas at the end because ultimately Ghostmaker is going to likely show up and defeat them all. I have a feeling Ghostmaker is going to show up and all, all six of those assassins that are in front of M Madame Midas, they're all just going to walk away. They're not even going to bother fighting them. They're just going to leave. <laughs> I don't know because if, if they all have that healthy of respect... Because even last issue, they said, what? You mean Ghostmaker's coming here? <laughs> you could have given us a heads up. I mean, they actually seem kind of afraid of him almost in a way. It's like, well, why, did you, why didn't you tell us? But yeah, it's interesting. But uh, yeah, so my, uh, I guess my comments on the main story, Batman 108 itself. Uh, Miracle Molly is an interesting uh, character. She's sort of a, in many ways, she reminds me of a typical millennial. And I say this in, in, in a, bearing in mind that I'm, I'm in my, I'm in my early fifties. Okay. So, so I say this in a, in the most loving way possible. She reminds me of what I often describe as a typical millennial, which is well-intentioned, but seems to be, uh, blaming the rich for all the problems uh, in society. Uh, and that it's always the the person who has more money than you. It must be something they're doing wrong as opposed to what you're doing wrong. Miracle Molly is is the perfect example of a probably a bipolar, depressed, purple-haired, but no green-haired uh, teenager with a ring through her nose, doesn't have to work for a living, happens to be a genius, lives in a warehouse, probably no idea how it's paid for, and of course, can see through the master of disguises himself, Batman. No one's ever been able to guess that matches Malone as Batman, but along comes Miracle Molly and pulls off a miracle, and immediately has been able to put together that matches Malone is in fact Batman. This is very forced to me. Uh, again, I'm impressed as hell with Miracle Molly. She's obviously very intelligent. She's written very well. She explains her motivations very well. She explains her um, her reasons for being in the Unsanity Collective. She makes it sound really good. She, along with Punchline, I think would be a master at propaganda, <laughs> politically, if, if I'm blunt. And in that way, she's interesting. You could, I get the sense that that Batman slash Bruce Wayne is a little bit impressed with her, that she was able to figure it all out. Uh, I would suggest that this Batman is a little bit, Tinian's Batman here is a little bit more flawed because most of the time, Batman, when you're a master of disguise, you're a master of your body language as well. So she would never have been able, if Batman was truly trying to hide himself as Matches Malone, Matches Malone, you can't, he, Batman cloaks his body language. He he's a master of body language, body everything. You're not Miracle Monday would not be able to figure that out. But clearly, uh, if clearly she's, I that's why it feels forced to me. And maybe that's just me being nitpicky, and maybe me being old school Batman, Uber Batman. I don't know. But in any event, despite everything I just said. Believe it or not, I actually like Miracle Mon Molly. Miracle Molly. I, 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 did I call her Miracle Monday? Anyways, Miracle Molly. I actually, something about the character I actually like. She's not a bad person. She doesn't appear to be evil. She's very frank and forthright with Batman. She's not trying to hide anything from him. She anticipates his questions. She answers his questions. She shows him around. If she was manipulating him, she's doing a masterful job of it. 
and Batman doesn't seem to be too alarmed with what she's telling him. And she even answered the question. She acknowledged that, in fact, it was Simon Saint that hired the Insanity Collective to attack uh, some of the broadcast companies, which are manipulating the media to stoke fear in society in Gotham uh, with what we know to be ultimately Scarecrow at the helm of it, working in conjunction with Simon Saint and uh, and at the behest of, or there's some connections with Mayor Nagano. So uh, again, I like what Tinian's doing here. We're getting a complex story, a good story with interesting characters. There's aspects of, of Miracle Molly that I do not like, but that doesn't mean she's not a great character. I like characters that sort of grate at me a little bit. And so I actually respect this character. I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, what's her first appearance again? Is it? I mean, this is her first cover appearance, and right, I mean, isn't it last issue? Any, it was last issue, was, wasn't it? Maybe the issue, or maybe even the issue before, where she, I don't know. It, it was just her I voice. Mean, they they showed her face in her voice because she just spoke with that man. I think it was a cameo, and I I would have thought I think this is her first cover appearance anyway. Or yeah, oh, I'm wrong. I mean, it, Am I wrong on that? Yeah. No, I think this is her first cover appearance. I, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of a flatline and how oh, some people are saying it's Detective 1034 where she appears in the background on the monitor of a TV screen. I mean, how how yeah. can that be a first appearance? She doesn't right. even have a you know <laughs> yeah. like really right. just so so ridiculous. A- anyway, yeah, she she is an interesting character. Uh, probably the most interesting character that that Tynan's created in a, in a while. Um, for me, the jury's still out on Ghostmaker. Clown Hunter, I think, is terrible. So, anyway, moving on. Uh, one more book. It's Batman uh, Fortnite Zero Point Part Two. Concept slash story consultant Donald Mustard. Writer is Christos Gage. Pencils are by Riley Brown. Inks by Nelson Faro de Castro. Colors by John Kalis. And letters by Anne World Design. Uh, like I mentioned previously, I think if you understand the game of Fortnite, you're going to get more out of this. Um, it, it, this isn't the most original story, but I, I think Gage does a great job of integrating the DC universe with the Fortnite universe. Uh, and I don't know where else you could go with the story because I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, Batman has no memory, right? Uh, none of the, none of these combatants have any memory once the Fortnite map resets and they respawn. Um, and so he leaves himself little notes so that he, he will have more information the next time when everything resets. Now, that's a kind of a trope or a story idea that's been done time and time and time again, anywhere from from Star Trek The Next Generation to – hold on a second. I don't know why my Alexa just started talking like crazy right there. Sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, it, it is a, uh, it, it's a – it's a whole idea that's been done, you know, time and again, but I, I don't know – where else you can go go with it? They don't have memories, so of course you're going to try to pass information on from one instance to to the next. So I, I think it works really well. I think the art is is great. The color work is great. Uh, I just feel like I'm I'm definitely not the target audience for this because I'm not a gamer and I'm not I don't play Fortnite. I would be really curious to know what Fortnite players are actually reading this and, and are they enjoying it? I mean, we know the first issue sold like gangbusters, but that was because of the code that was in the book. My understanding is that the codes that are in the book that give you a skin. So the first issue had like a, a Harley Quinn 
skin. So when you play Fortnite, your character will look like Harley Quinn. <laughs> and then the speculation I've heard is that the subsequent <laughs> codes are going to be to change the coloring on Harley or give her a bat or a mallet or different weapons. And then if you collect all six that supposedly are Harley related, uh, it unlocks this armored Batman skin, which probably looks similar to how Batman looks in this, uh, in this comic. Um, so the cost of a skin in the game is, is it's about $20 in, in real world currency. You know, you, you go and you buy Fortnite money or whatever it is. And it costs about, you know, 2000 Fortnite bucks or whatever it is. And in order to buy Fortnite bucks, I mean, obviously you can win the game or get rewards from the game, but you can just go and buy it outright. And it costs about $20. So basically what I'm saying is the fact that number one is going online for $20. It's like, <laughs> that's what you would spend on a skin anyway. And that's you're exactly. getting the comic for free. Yeah. <laughs> are, are people bothering to read the comic? That's the question I have. And if you're a Fortnite player, are you enjoying this comic? Is it an interesting enough story to you? Or are you just buying the comic to get the code and then you're throwing the comic away or tossing it in the corner or whatnot? I mean, we saw on eBay, there were some people that were just selling the code. They, they weren't even bothering to ship the comic to people. They were just saying, okay, here's, here's the code. So uh, we know it was underordered. There were various problems. This didn't exactly get announced in a timely fashion when it was coming out and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I pre-ordered the whole series and uh, I pre-ordered, I think two issues of each of the covers they, they've dropped. They, they were going for like as high as like $60 on the day that it came out because of people that can't wait, you know, but um, I think when I checked on eBay later in the week, I, I saw issues for like 12 to fifteen ninety nine. So I'm not sure where it's at right now. Um, but this is one of those books where I don't, I don't know how much it's going to hold value. I guess it just depends on if Fortnite continues to be really popular because let's say two or three years from now, Fortnite's still a thing and you have new gamers coming in and discovering it. They go, wait, how do I get that Batman armored thing? I got to go buy that comic. I got to find an issue of that comic that doesn't have the code used up. It might be a lot tougher to find in, in a few years. So I, it all depends on, it all depends on how, uh, how well Fortnite maintains its popularity. Uh, and that's just in terms of value in terms of the story. Like I said, it, it's a it's a it's a Batman story. It's fun. You don't need to know anything about Fortnite. Probably don't need to know anything about Batman if you're coming at it from the other perspective. But if you know, it, the more you know about Batman and the more you know about Fortnite, the more you're probably going to enjoy this story. Yeah, I uh, I'm going to uh, just slightly. I'm going to be far more. I really enjoyed this issue, and I actually it never occurred to me that this was tropey. But I acknowledge that the whole idea have have I have have I seen movies before or storylines where people get lost in time or maybe like a Groundhog Day type of thing where they got to give themselves, you know, markers to sort of to try to remember that they've already lived certain moments? I don't I don't find that happens a lot in comic books and storylines like that I've read. And if, if it is, I found it very refreshing here, at least insofar as this. If you're new to comics and you don't read a lot of comics, this is an this is awesome. This is exactly what you would expect. Because when you play a video game, you die. You die multiple times before you get it right. That's how video gamers play. They keep playing and they die all the time. And until they, and they keep coming back until they get it right. 
Batman. That's exactly what this story is. He keeps coming back until he gets it right, until he figures out how to be the last one surviving. And this, but while he's doing it, I really enjoyed the character work here. It was clear that not only were we getting a lot of awesome action, this was a fun comic, but we were watching him. He was clearly showing some emotion to Catwoman, and she was showing some emotion to him. They had to sacrifice themselves for each other. Uh, Batman had to die, and he sacrificed himself. So we could actually... How many comic books do we actually get to see Batman die? I mean, really actually die. But he gets to come back. I don't actually... know. We actually don't get to see that very often, because Batman always escapes. This is a case where Batman is literally dying, and he has to keep dying in order to figure it out. And... I actually enjoyed the narration. I thought uh, Crystal's Cage did a, did a great job. I even liked the, the the scenes where it shows Batman writing on different parts of his body, his his, his suit, his armor, uh, marking the environment, and and I thought artistically uh, the the artist uh, who is the artist here Ke- Kelly or Riley Brown. Riley Brown, yeah. Riley Brown. I th- I thought he did a really good job here. I'm overall like I'm I just really enjoyed this. I thought it was very well done. And like, look, it's, it's, it's a little bit cliche and maybe, but it's fun. And this isn't like injustice. I will say this, my, in my best case scenario, I was hoping, could this be as awesome as injustice and lead to a Tom Taylor, like alternate universe that is really, really, you know, challenging the way that we conceive and think of our various DC heroes in a Fortnite reality. Well, no, that's not what this is. This is very much focused on gaming and gamers. And I, I don't play Fortnite, but I really felt the video game aspect of this comic because they're coming back, they're dying, and they're they're reliving. Batman's always trying to figure out, okay, and they keep failing. They keep failing. And, and I don't know about you, I'm really bad at video games. I get so frustrated when I play video games. The reason I don't play video games is that I don't have the patience that the younger generation has. I when I don't if I get killed five or six times in a row, I want to I want to shut the video game off and go read a comic. <laughs> you know, people will play video games for eight or nine hours to figure it out. I, I I lose patience. I don't I don't have patience for that. So I can almost kind of appreciate the comic. I can sort of like you know I get this. I felt the struggle of Batman and the frustration here, and I thought. You know, I don't know. Again, I, I enjoyed this. I thought the character work was good, and I see the frustration of Batman, the uh, the determination of Catwoman, and the fight scenes were well choreographed. Um, yeah, like I said, this was a lot of fun. I, I echo your comments, though. Uh, the spec DC really uh, shit the bed on the marketing on this with retailers and everything else. With it's it's awful that speculators are you know that the price on this is going for twenty to fifty dollars online for the first issue. I mean, I can now it's going to third and I think even fourth printings as they bloody well should because there's no reason in the world why people. I mean, like you said, it's cheaper to just pay the twenty bucks for the extra skin as opposed to going through the BS of going to your comic shop and trying to get a copy of this issue that's sold out because of speculators. I mean, it's got to be frustrating and it's not doing comic books any favors. It's making the comic book industry look really, really bad. And that's not how we attract new readership. Yeah. And hopefully the sort of the kinks will be worked out on for subsequent issues. It's going to be those first couple that might be, might be hard to find. Um, 
one last thing I'll mention. So there are several times in the in the story where Batman writes down coordinates where when the game resets, he, he knows where to go for the next one. Uh, if you plug those coordinates in in the real world, the location, one of them is the location of the uh, the gaming company that makes Fortnite. Oh, really? Apparently, <laughs> yeah, which apparently is somewhere in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, That's where, awesome. Cary, North Carolina, I think. Yeah. Uh, the second set of coordinates is um, in Burbank, where Warner Brothers is. It's not the Warner Brothers studio. And then the third one... Um, with the instructions, the cat is a friend. It's the corner of the Nichols Library in Naperville, Illinois, which you're probably going, <laughs> what the hell? Why is it in Naperville, Illinois? Uh, well, on the uh, the corner of that library is a statue of the cat in the hat. So huh. that uh, kind of plays into egg. the whole the, Yeah. The, the cat is your, is your friend. So the cat in the hat is, is everybody's friend. So anyway, that does it for the DC books that we're going to talk about this week. There are a couple other titles that are coming out. Uh, I mentioned man bat number four. I think that's the next to last issue of that series. I think it's a five issue mini. Uh, also the dreaming waking hours, number 10 from the, the Sandman corner of the DC universe is hitting stands this week uh, as well as uh, some collections or whatnot. So there are a few other DC books out that you uh, might want to be on the lookout for. But uh, but that's it for the, the main titles. Uh, Rocky and I need to need to get together and talk about next week when there's like 12 DC books coming out and figure <laughs> out, are we going to talk about all of them? Are we going to split it up in two episodes? What are we going to do? It's going to be a big week coming. Yeah, we'll uh, have to figure, we'll figure something out. Yeah, and uh, coming, coming Wednesday this week, there's a lot of big uh, big books dropping. Uh, we have the third issue of Noctera. We have the third issue of ENIAC from Bad Idea. There's a new Bad Idea title, Walesville uh, plus Rocks and Minerals uh, is dropping, and there will be a first uh, first customer button for that one as well. So there, there are a few other big books coming this week, but it looks like next week is really the week uh, to be on the lookout for. So uh, got anything coming up that you want to tease, Rocky? Uh, well, again, I'm still, uh, I, I feel bad. I've been saying this for like two weeks now. I'm still working on my top 50 and I just haven't got around to uh, posting it yet. I'm still working out some wrinkles, but uh, I'm working on that. And uh, there's a couple other things, but no, I'm going to, I'm just going to focus on my top 50 at 50 and uh, I'm a little busy at work, but I'll, you know, keep an eye on my channel. My, my, my subscribers will, they'll get some notice. I, I'll post them on Twitter, but what about yourself? You got something else coming out? Uh, I don't. I don't have a whole lot going on this week uh, other than on Friday, I'll be dropping an episode that's all about uh, it's all about numbers, basically comic book sales. That's awesome. So I got into a, a Twitter discussion uh, over, I guess, toward the end of last week, somebody was talking about how they they, they made a, some comment on Twitter about how they hoped in the future that Bendis' Superman run would would go down as one of the greatest runs uh, as it so richly deserves. And it's, it was so good. And, <laughs> and it, it was just it was completely ludicrous. And then somebody else jumped on and, and basically said, yeah, I, I don't know why it gets such a bad rap. If you look at the sales, it sold better than rebirth. It sold better, I think than the new no. 52 run. Um, and, you know, we, we have talked many times on, on you know, both, both your channel with dark Knight 
yeah. uh, on my podcast uh, specifically about just how bad the sales have been uh, <laughs> on on Bendis's Superman. They they've worked terrible, but I never had gone and actually crunched the numbers to to compare just how bad they were. So I stayed up really late on Friday night, like till like one or two in the morning, crunching the numbers and yeah. and looking at just how bad it was even worse than I thought. Um, so I, I will give Bendis credit that if you just compare Rebirth with Bendis's Superman run, mm. the first issue of the Superman title yeah. was the highest selling out of any Rebirth issue or any Bendis issue. Yeah. But the second issue of Bendis's Superman dropped by over half. It was like 150,000 down to 77,000 for issue two. And once that drop happened, Rebirth outsold Bendis for every issue. Now, the caveat here being that once DC left Diamond, we don't have sales numbers. So I don't have any concrete sales numbers for the last seven issues of Bendis's uh, action or Superman run. They're just the, the data is not there. And that's part of the reason I wanted to bring on um, John Jackson Miller from Comic-Con. And we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. But then I went back and I, so yeah, Rebirth definitely outsold all of Bendis' stuff. It, it wasn't a huge amount always, but it was uh, enough to where you could say, you know, 10,000, 8,000 on a consistent basis. Yeah, um, the numbers dropped on Rebirth from month, one month to the next, yeah. but numbers dropped on Bendis' usually more. So Rebirth always outsold Bendis with the exception of that first issue. When I went back and looked at New 52, Oh my God, no contest, no contest. We, I think people forget what a juggernaut new 52 was for the first two or three years that it existed. Uh, most of the time for the first two years, the new 52 issues of action and Superman were selling double what Bendis was selling. Um, action was selling even more than Superman back then. Cause Grant Morrison and yeah. the, the strength of his name uh, because in Rebirth, the Superman title sold more than action. In Bendis' run, again, Superman title. And I kind of feel like th that could be because of the renumbering. People are less likely to jump on something that's up in the thousands like uh, or 900s like action was during Rebirth uh, and it was during uh, the Bendis run. So maybe that's why I can't explain any other way. As opposed to when the, uh, the New 52 started, action and Superman both started over with number one. So it was a level playing field. One was written by Grant Morrison. One was being written by George Perez. Morrison's going to win that battle more. You know, he's got a bigger fan base. Um, but no, uh, Bendis did not outsell New 52. Not even, not even close. Well, at the, near the end of the Comicron, I know that uh, he wasn't even outselling Tomasi and Gleason Superman. He, he outsold no, them at the beginning, but uh, he, he no, was below what even that's them. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, Rocky. That's the rebirth era. Bendis yeah. never outsold. The only time Bendis outsold Tamaki and Gleason was on the first issue. <laughs> if you look at Tomasi and Gleason's second issue, yeah. if you look at Bendis's second issue, Tomasi and Gleason had higher sales. Same thing with three and four and five. You just go down. The only time Bendis outsold any previous Superman book yeah. in since 2000. 11 yeah. was Superman number one. Which that is, is it. Yeah, Otherwise, Tomasi Gleason run outsold him the whole, entire right. time. 
And Which is why it's, it surprises me, though, that uh, that DC editorial. I mean, usually they're guided at least a little bit by sales numbers. That sales matter, and to their editorial decision in terms of the direction of Superman, the aging up of John Kent, all the all the massive, massive status quo changes implemented by Bendis that they've kept them all is is actually. It's just astonishing to me if, you know, it, given the reality of the sales numbers. And uh, uh, although I will say, though, that in defense, an argument could be made that Super Sons never sold as well as most people think. The Adventures of the Super Sons, the Super Sons, uh, the, their own series was always in the 20,000 range. And, it, and for some reason, it's... Uh, uh, people assume that it's, they would they would have sold more individually, but it didn't. But the, Gleas- the I agree with you. The Gleason and Tomasi run was was awesome. Like it, w- those early issues of a young young John Kent man. Those are just those are like classics, instant classics, just incredible. But anyways, I'm 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 really looking forward to your interview with uh, what's his what's his first name? It's just Jackson, right? John John Jackson Miller. John Jackson. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. I I'm looking forward to that because you know he's. I'd like to. I'd love to know where he gets all his his information now, because I know that I believe he was working toward writing a book on comic book sales over the last few decades and over the last forty fifty years. And I think the guy's just an amazing uh, hodgepodge of information. Yeah, but, I agree. Um, specifically, I'm I'm really curious. Okay, so what Marvel's going to move away from Diamond too, right? They're going to, to Random House. So yes. Well, then 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 what? I mean, are, are comic sales are we just not going to have comic sales. I, I I think there's a lot of value to them, you know. I think um, there specifically is specifically for things like like we're talking about, where you know people can spout whatever they want, uh, but if you don't have the, it's right here in black and white. Bendis fans, uh, you can say whatever you want about it outselling this or outselling that, but here's the actual sales what? reported from the you know distributor, sure. the sole distributor of the book. This is how many it sold. Now whether or not they're sitting in comic shops. Or they actually sold through. That's another story altogether. There's no way to know. That. So let me ask you uh, this then: What do you think that? Uh, I mean, the open question is: I mean, if I was DC or Marvel, why would I? Why would I care that readers like you or I are have access to the sales numbers? Why? Wh- like, why should they care? Should Marvel or DC give a rat's ass if we know what the sales are to retail shops? Because I, I always love looking at the sales numbers, but why would they care? Should they care? I mean, what's your opinion on that? I, so, well, I think, again, that there's value to it, but I think it's a, a kind of a way to save face, right? Like nobody wants to, like if the sales are great, then by all means trumpet it, you know, from the highest rooftops. But when the sales are not what you expect them to be, and you're a person who's in charge of marketing or, you know, editorial that creates the stories and they're not selling, then yeah, you kind of want to keep that under your ha- under your hat, right? So- I can see why they would not want want people to know, um, but I mean we've always had the we've always had the data, so this is going to be yeah. a big change. And it's one one of the things I'm going to talk to to John about. And you know, are we going to get the sales and uh, and and who knows? So yeah, um, I'd be curious to know if if Marvel if the big two are giving him any pushback or do they? What's his sense of do do they do they care about? the numbers being getting getting out and cuz DC's always been in second place for the most part throughout the last 50 50 60 years and Marvel's always been you know usually at the top of the market and now because we're dealing with a corporate mindset is you know and they're so damn secretive and they're they're more concerned about image and everything else and if it's bad news they would rather have no news it's 
I don't, yeah, I don't well, know I mean, if I like really, this new era. That, that's really what what's at the core of this, right? Like these are big corporations that are used to keeping numbers a secret. And why would why would circulation be any different as opposed to in traditional publishing, your circulation numbers are public knowledge. Um, so I have a feeling that the days of, of us getting the sales numbers are, are coming to an end, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess we'll see. And as far as, as Bendis staying on, despite the, the poor numbers, the only thing I can point to is, you know, they gave Bendis such a sweetheart of a deal and they were paying him so much money. I guess you just, you hate you, you can't put them on it and then take them off six months later saying, Hey, we made, that's bl- blatantly saying we screwed up, right? We, we messed up. We should have never given Bendis this, this much money or given him this much control over the Superman corner of the DC universe. Cause clearly it didn't work. Um, frankly, I'm surprised the sales were as high as they were when I actually looked at the numbers. Um, but it's so funny too, because I still, I mean, that that's how this whole thing started, right? Like I saw a thread on, on Twitter um, that people were talking about how much they loved it. And it almost invariably when that happens, it, it's not these, they're not fans of Superman necessarily. They're not fans of, of the story that's being told. They're fans of Bendis, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll ride or die with him. So there, there is a, a cachet to his name, but I think DC overestimated how big of a draw he was, oh, sure. you know, that yeah. his, his, his fan base, in my mind, has shrunk significantly over the past 10 years. Uh, and he's he's not, you know, it's not a situation where, okay, put Bendis on a book and it's going to sell 100,000 copies uh, for the first issue and and hover, you know, around 75,000 anymore. I yeah, think no, realistically, you're looking at about 35,000, which doesn't, uh, that doesn't um, merit the the deal that he got at DC with how much money they they gave him. And we saw that, like, uh, I, I, again, I don't know any details of his contract, but I would be really surprised if the initial contract that he sold or signed rather was as short as the, the stint, right? Like he's yeah. already not exclusive at DC anymore. Yeah, now, no. Well, and if it wasn't for Naomi getting its t- her own TV show and he's got Naomi volume two coming out, he's got, uh, he's got Leviathan checkmate coming out. And beyond that, I'm not sure where else, what else is he going to be? What does he have coming out at DC? He's got, he's, got, he's got his Justice League title. Oh, that's right, um, Justice League. Yeah. But, <laughs> Can you believe I, I forgot I, Justice League? <laughs> I I would be not surprised at all if there was a clause. If somebody at Warner Brothers said, "You know what? I'm not really. I don't even know who this Bendis guy is. Can we put a clause in his contract that says if he doesn't meet a certain uh, level of sales, that we can get out of this exclusive contract and stop giving him all this money?" Yeah. Uh, because you, very rarely would you see somebody sign a an exclusive contract that's only two years long, three three years long. I mean, usually they're minimum of five, if not longer. But I mean, I could be wrong. It could have been a two or three year with an option to re up, and uh, and DC just chose not to take the option. Um, but we we know that the the whole idea of exclusive contracts are coming to a close. Alex Sinclair is another longtime DC creator that uh, didn't re-up Brad Walker's another. So uh, there's very few DC exclusive creators uh, anymore. And uh, I expect that to continue. Tom King will not be exclusive there soon is my, my guess. Um, And I can't really think off the top of my head of anybody else who's uh, exclusive. I'm I'm sure there are some Uh, maybe Doug Mankey or Yvonne Reese, but 
we know that's something Pamela Lifeford's trying to get rid of. Just get rid of that expense, and bring in these uh, these cheaper writers, basically. Yeah. But uh, yeah, look look for that episode with John Jackson Miller. We'll be talking a lot of, a lot about this stuff come Friday. So if that's your cup of tea, kind of the nuts and bolts of the industry and what drives sales and uh, editorial decisions and whatnot. I mean, at the end of the day, these these publishers are in the business of making money. So they want these books to sell. So, yeah, well, I'll definitely look, f- I'm sure we all look forward to that. And, uh, you know, we'll ha- we'll be hopefully enlightened as to comic book sales come Friday. That's, that's, I'm yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, and I, I hope John's going to come on and say, oh, I, I got, I got a back door. I, I got sources. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. start getting full sales. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's not going to be the case. But uh, anyway, I think that does it, everybody. I uh, yeah. hope you enjoyed our uh, DC Spotlight rundown for the week of May 4th, 2021. Uh, be sure you subscribe to the Comic Boom channel on YouTube. If you're listening to this uh, audio podcast only, uh, just do a search for Comic Boom on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube and you're curious about the Comic Source podcast, we're on all the platforms. Just do a search for the Comic Source and you'll you'll find us. So uh, once again, Rocky and I want to thank everybody for listening and we will talk to you next time. Catch you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.